0: Heavenly Father, we ask that as we just sang, you would come and turn our eyes upon Jesus, and that we would indeed see him in all his glory and grace. For we pray it in his name, amen. Amen. Oh Lord, I never expected this. Jesus, I'm not sure if I can take it, I've trusted you with my life, I've followed you. And now this, what are you doing? Many a Christian has at some point or another said or felt these words. I know some of you are wrestling with these words right now. And you know what, that's okay. Because time and again Jesus has come and engaged folks in exactly this sort of condition. And in fact, our reading from Mark's Gospel, these words could have just as easily come from the Apostle Peter's mouth. So my question to you and for us this morning is what does Jesus do with folks in such a condition? That's what I wanna explore with you this morning. We'll be in the reading from Mark's Gospel and we're gonna see three things. An invitation, a sight to behold, and an anchor for the days ahead. So first, an invitation. Today is the last Sunday uh, in the season of Epiphany when we commemorate the Transfiguration. And I've chosen to expand the assigned reading from the Gospel of Mark in order to include what comes immediately before the Transfiguration. And that's because these events are not only tied to one another, but they come at a critical juncture in Mark's Gospel. You see the Mark's Gospel falls neatly into two halves. On the one hand, you have the first half which deals with Jesus's identity. The second half of Mark's Gospel focuses on his mission. The first half, Jesus is in primarily the region of Galilee. But in the second half, he's gonna be focused towards going to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. And the hinge upon which both of these halves turn is what we have before us this morning in the reading from Mark's gospel. In Mark 8:27, the central question of that first half of Mark, who is Jesus? It comes to a crescendo when he goes north into Caesarea Philippi. There Jesus asks his disciples directly, "Who do people say that I am?" And the answers vary: John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, And then Jesus asks them, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is so often the first to act or speak up for good or for ill, says, you are the Christ. And you see, at this point in Mark's gospel, only God and demons have rightly seen Jesus for who he is. But now we see for the very first time, the first human being to see Jesus as he really is. That word Christ, it's it's a title, it's not Jesus' last name. That word Christ, it comes from the Greek form for the word, uh, for the Hebrew, Messiah. They both mean, Christ and Messiah, they both mean the anointed one. And they refer to the promised, anticipated king of the Jews. So Peter, he's correctly identified Jesus. He rightly said that Jesus is the Christ, but what Peter has in his mind about what that means, and what Jesus has in his mind for what that means, those are two very different things. Peter's confessed the proper title of Jesus, but he has a wrong understanding. The confession of Jesus as the Christ, it's correct in name, but not in content, because Peter has misunderstood Jesus's mission, and we see that in verses 31 and following. Jesus now, for the first time in Mark's Gospel, begins to speak openly and plainly about what he came to do. He says, the Son of Man, that's one of Jesus's favorite titles for himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That's a very different mission than what Peter and any other first century Jew would have expected the Messiah, the Christ, to do. You see, the Christ was supposed to be King David's greater son, the one who was going to come and restore the throne of Israel to its proper place among the nations. And after centuries of being ruled by Assyria and Babylon and Persia and now the Romans, the longing for this Christ was never greater here would be someone finally to overthrow Rome and to restore Israel. So you can imagine Peter's shock when all of a sudden he says, Jesus, you're the Christ, and then Jesus says that the Christ is going to suffer and die. Peter and his fellow disciples are bewildered. They must have thought, wait, wait, wait. That's not what you're supposed to do. That's not what we signed up for. It's one thing to devote your life to a conquering hero. It's another thing to devote your life to somebody whose purpose is to come and die. Peter and his disciples no doubt are disoriented at this point. To say the least, they're confused, knocked off balance by Jesus' words. And it's not a stretch to imagine the disappointment they must have felt as they now consider the trajectory of their lives going forward. And it's certainly not a stretch to assume that they might have had some doubt as to whether even following Jesus from now on was even worth it. Safe to say that some combination of disorientation, disappointment, and doubt filled Peter's heart because he rebukes Jesus in verse 32. Far be it from you, far be it from the Christ for such a thing to be. But Peter rebukes Jesus only to find himself rebuked by Jesus in return. Jesus then calls a a crowd together. He acknowledges what's going on in the hearts of the disciples, but he stands firmly on what he said. And this reality is true, that following him means being willing to suffer the same things that he will suffer. Because Jesus is growing to the cross, following him necessarily means taking up your own cross. But while Jesus promises that following him means self-denial and suffering, maybe even death, he doesn't apologize. In fact, he confidently asserts that losing your life for him is counterintuitively the way to find it. Yes, this is difficult, Jesus says, but it's worth it. And then after verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus finishes talking. The next thing we read in verse 2 is that six days have gone by. Six days days. None of the gospel writers tell us what happened in those six days. I would have loved to have seen what happened after Jesus finished speaking those words. What was the look on Peter's face and the other disciples as they heard those things from Jesus's mouth? Surely Jesus's words would have been a shockwave through their hearts, but we're not told their reaction. What I want you to do right now is I want you to put yourself in Peter and these other disciples' shoes. What would you have done if you were Peter after this sort of encounter? I confess to you, I don't know what I exactly would have done. It is quite a flip to go from following a conquering hero to following a suffering servant. If I'm honest with you, I know that it can take far less than a word of correction or a rebuke to cause the average person to just walk away. to to disengage. Usually when people are confronted or uncomfortable or disappointed, uh, if, if things simply aren't going their way, more often than not, they disengage. Folks just stop responding to texts, to phone calls. As the kids say these days, they ghost you. They just quietly vanish. Well, I want you to see something this morning. The first thing that we see, which in my opinion, is absolutely astonishing, is Peter doesn't ghost Jesus or the disciples. He's right there. He is still there. He hasn't fled the scene. He hasn't disengaged from the group. In all his disorientation and disappointment and doubt, he has chosen to stick it out with Jesus and his disciples. When he could have easily walked away, he instead has chosen to lean into these people. And what happens next is Jesus issues an invitation. It's an invitation that Peter would have missed had he fled the scene. And as we will see next, it's a glorious invitation. And I want you to see this morning, Jesus always welcomes those who are struggling or doubting or in despair. He always invites them to lean into him and his people. And this is exactly where our text teaches us that we should go when we feel the same way. When we are disoriented and disappointed, we must stay with Jesus and his church. We must lean in. If you are here this morning and can relate to what Peter is feeling, let me ask you, where are you turning? What are you leaning into? So Jesus responds to those who are disoriented, discouraged, and doubting with an invitation, don't disengage, but but go deeper. And what we see next is that this invitation is a glorious invitation, it's a sight to behold what comes next. What these three men will see will be the most amazing thing they've ever seen in their entire lives. In verse 2 Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on a high mountain by themselves and it says that Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now what exactly is going on here? Well the first The word for transfigured in the Greek is metamorphothē, which we get the word metamorphosis. Jesus is undergoing some sort of transformation. One scholar has rightly said that this word transformation, it doesn't signify a change in Jesus's essence or nature. Rather, it signifies an outward and visible transformation of his appearance in order to accord with his true nature. This visible transformation is amazing. It affects even Jesus' clothing. Mark reaches the, the limits of language as he tries to describe it. He says his clothes became so radiant, so white, that it's impossible exactly to describe it because no bleach on earth could get clothes that white. So what in the world does all of this mean? Well, just as... Peter's faulty misunderstanding of Jesus had been rebuked just prior, so now Peter and James and John are invited by Jesus to come and receive greater, more deeper understanding of who Jesus really is. They're witnessing something essential about Jesus' identity. While his mission was more humble or rather humiliating for Peter, Jesus wanted Peter to be sure that Jesus' person, his, his nature, his identity was in fact more glorious than Peter could have imagined. In order to see what, what's really going on in this passage, you and I are at a, at a disadvantage actually, because this scene, both for Jesus' disciples then and for the Jews in the first century, it would have been an obvious allusion to another scene on a similar mountain. You see, one of the climactic moments of the Old Testament is when uh, Moses who delivered Israel out of Egypt, uh, out of slavery, and goes to Mount Sinai. And there, he's on the mountain. And he has a similar experience to what is happening in this passage. Moses goes up on the mountain, he receives the word of the Lord, he gives it to the people, and then he asks God in Exodus 33 for something incredible. He asks to see God's glory. And Moses, or sorry, God responds to Moses by essentially saying, Moses, you have no idea what you're asking for. No man can look at me and behold my glory and live because my glory is so pure, so radiant, so holy that it will consume any and everything that is unclean. And even the great Moses was a sinner. And so that would mean the end of Moses, would be the end of any man but remarkably God doesn't leave it there. He tells Moses to go into the the side of the mountain, and when he's there, God's actually gonna pass by Moses, and as he passes by, he's gonna cover Moses so that he's not consumed by God's glory. And then once he passes by, he's gonna remove the covering, and Moses will be able to peer and see just a dim glimpse of the glory of God. Moses will see a dim, clouded reminiscence of God's glory fading away. But even that does something remarkable to Moses. He comes down the mountain, and then all of Israel is terrified, because Moses' face is shining, it's radiant. You see, even a, a little glimpse of the glory of God caused Moses to radiate himself with that same glory what is happening with Jesus and Peter and James and John, it's a very clear allusion to what happened to Moses centuries before. And in case anyone would miss that allusion, Moses actually shows up on the mountain with Jesus at his transfiguration, and he talks with him. Now that would have been a conversation I would have loved to have overheard. Moses centuries later talking to the one he was looking for. But if we are to understand what's happening in our passage, we need to notice a major point of difference between Jesus and Moses. I want you to look at the source of the glory in both accounts. Where does the glory come from? Moses, his face is shining with a reflected glory. It passed on to him from God. But notice, Jesus is utterly different. Unlike Moses, Jesus doesn't have a reflected glory. Instead, his glory is an inherent glory. It comes from within himself. That's the whole purpose of this event. Jesus is demonstrating, yes, Peter, I'm a suffering Christ. That's the kind of mission that I've come to accomplish. But, oh, don't think any less of me because of it. My mission is more humble than you ever thought, but I am so much more glorious than you ever imagined. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I'm the ancient of days. The glory that I possess is an eternal, intrinsic glory. It's the glory of Almighty God because that is who I am. God and man fully. My friends, the reason The transfiguration is so important is because it is here that we see the only moment in Jesus's earthly life before his death and resurrection where he displays who he really is. It's the only time in the humiliation of the Son of God. That's the time when the second person of the Trinity humbled himself, took on flesh, went to the cross. It's the only time in that season that he actually for a moment pulled back the veil and showed his eternal glory. It's the true essence of Jesus. I want you to think about this. Peter sees what Moses didn't on Mount Sinai. Peter beholds God face to face and sees the glory that Moses longed for. And what's amazing is that Moses actually shows up too and sees the very thing he longed to see. Finally, in the face of Jesus Christ. So what does this practically mean for you and me? Well, what this passage teaches us is that Jesus engages those who are disoriented, discouraged, and doubting. He invites them to come to Him and to get a greater understanding of who He is. Jesus' invitation to those in Peter's condition is both wonderfully and frustratingly simple. If you're confused at the circumstances in your own life right now, if you sense Jesus maybe has let you down or betrayed you, if you're unsure if it's worth it to trust him with your whole life, then what Jesus would have you do this very moment is to behold him in all his glory. So how do we actually do that? That leads me to my third and final point Jesus extends an invitation. It's an invitation to come and see a sight to behold, and this sight to behold leads to an anchor for the days ahead. It was John Owen who said, Jesus is not concerned that His disciples should merely see how glorious He is, but that beholding, by beholding His glory, they might have encouragement and strength and satisfaction and blessedness. Beholding God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, it actually does something to us. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul declares that God's glory changes those who behold it. He says that when we behold Jesus's glory, we are transformed into that same glory. In short, we become what we behold. The glory of Jesus, it began to change Peter, it changed him. It was transforming Peter, but it was a process. At first, he, he wanted to stay up on that mountain. He wanted all the glory that was there, instead of going back down below, where he knew suffering awaited him and Jesus. That's why he's wanting to build tents in verse five. He wants to camp out, that's what you build tents for. He wants to camp out and stay a while. And As Jesus said, he has not come to stay there, he came to suffer and die. To take away the sins of the world, the sinless one must go to Jerusalem and die in the world's place. That's why from this moment forward, Jesus' gaze is squarely at the cross. It is there that he will accomplish his mission. And along the way, Peter's gonna experience some ups and downs. The lowest of the downs, perhaps, will be at that moment when Jesus is arrested and betrayed and he denies Jesus three times. But what Peter saw on this mountain of transfiguration, he would actually see again. He'd see it when Jesus would rise from the dead. And from that moment on, he and all the other disciples would be even more transformed because they have seen a glory stronger than the grave. Beholding the radiant glory of Jesus would change his disciples' lives forever see, many people try to explain away some of the supernatural phenomenon, both in this passage and with the resurrection. They say maybe, maybe Peter and James and John, maybe they were just hallucinating. Maybe they, they didn't quite see what was actually happening. It sounds plausible at first, but consider that these were three Galilean fishermen who spent their lives outdoors. They made their living on the water, and they were well acquainted with the tricks of nature that that can be played on the eyes. They knew the difference between a mirage and a reality. And even more than that though, each of these three men would go to their deaths with an unwavering confidence that they knew exactly what they had seen. James would be the first one to die of the apostles. In Acts 12, John would be exiled as a death sentence on Patmos. But while he would be writing his gospel in the waning years of his life, he wrote these words. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, we have beheld his glory. Peter, who had seen who, uh, before the resurrection, He denied Christ because he feared suffering. Well, once he sees the risen Christ, he'd be willing to go to his own cross, literally, when Nero, the emperor, would sentence him to crucifixion. And Peter, in the final days of his life, he would write these words that we heard earlier from 2 Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. These men would go to their deaths, refusing to deny what they knew they had seen with their own eyes. The only thing that can explain that, when you consider their sheepish character beforehand, is that they truly must have encountered the risen Jesus and seen God's glory. And it changed them forever. And my friends, it can change you forever. If you want an anchor for the future, you can behold this glory and it will change you. And it will enable you to withstand anything that comes your way. So how can we behold Jesus' glory? After all, these three got to see Jesus physically on the mountain. How do we do that? How do we behold his glory? Well, the only command in this part of the, the reading, did you catch it? It was from the voice of God the Father. The voice of God the Father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And for us to behold the glory of Christ today, right now, we must do so by listening to Jesus' word, the scriptures. Be assured that as we behold him by faith in his word, even in that way, we will experience that same glory that transformed Peter and James and John. If you want to behold the glory of Jesus Christ right now, let me suggest three things. First, meditate on God's word. Read it, study it. Let the promises of Jesus sink down into your soul. Ponder what he says and let what he says work out its implications in your life. Secondly, thank Jesus for what he says. Thank him, sing praises to him. When we do this sort of thing, we are testifying with heaven itself the infinite worth and beauty of Jesus when we thank Him, when we praise Him, when we sing to Him, this actually changes us. It helps us behold the glory of Jesus. Thirdly, if you want to behold the glory of Christ, you actually have to take Him at His word and trust Him and follow Him. It is in our action by serving and being obedient to Him that we also behold His glory. When we serve the poor and the needy, when we resist temptation by holding fast to Jesus, we are encountering the preciousness of the glory of Christ. We are beholding more and more the treasure that is Christ's glory. My friends, you were made for glory. You know that? You're made for glory. Not your own glory, but the glory that comes from God the Father. You were meant to behold that, to be changed by it, to reflect it in your life. You're made to become just as Jesus is. And when you behold his glory by faith in this life, you're actually being prepared to hold it, to to behold that same uh, vision of God's glory, the same vision of Jesus Christ. You're gonna see it one day. You're gonna behold it by sight. And we're being prepared for that eternity as we behold him by faith now. You know, the glory of Jesus, it's the only thing that will never get boring or run dry for all eternity, day after day after day. It's the only thing that will thrill your soul because that's what you were made for. And it's what can give us an anchor for the days ahead. So my friends, let me close with these words that we just sang. Are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.